honestly, at that point, we hadn't really figured out what mama meant. One of the members came and said, you're nurturing. Uh, you're, the, you're the mama of businesses. And I was like, of course. Entrepreneurship is the future for Africa. This is why this podcast exists and why our guest on today's show is developing a venture builder for African startups. I'm introducing Kitawa Wemo, founder of Mama Ventures in Kenya. My name is Kitawa Wemo. I like going by Kiki because I think it's so much easier <laughs> to remember. Um, so I'm 29. Uh, I'm the founder of Mama Social Ventures, which is an impact venture builder dedicated to female founders, especially early stage in East Africa. In this episode, we will hear Kitawa's journey of becoming an entrepreneur, how she learned to be independent from an early age, and how this independence accompanied her to date. We will also hear Kitawa's advice for young female entrepreneurs on how to succeed. My name is Antonia Lorenz, and this is the Foundality Africa podcast. Let's start with Kitawa's early life. How did she become the person that she is now? Where does her story begin? But her life started with a huge stroke of faith for her family. I think it was, it was quite interesting because when I was born, a few months later, my older brother uh, got diagnosed with leukemia. So it was very interesting because my parents then had to really take a lot of time with him. Um, considering that the only place that had chemo was in Nairobi. So they had to travel every week by road, which is seven, eight hours away. So my, my older siblings always laugh and say, oh, she was, she was the nanny's baby, because the nanny took care of me most of the mm -hmm. time. Kitawa's life obviously started out with some difficulties. And in the following years, she had to face many changes in her life. This is how it affected her. It was very interesting because I think there was that sense of independence from when I was a little girl. Because mm -hmm. I, my mom was like, you stopped breastfeeding on your own. <laughs> you kind of started talking really early and doing all the things super early. But I guess that just, it was a matter of circumstance. Then at some point I had to move to actually Kisi because my, my, my brother passed. So I went and, and I stayed and I stayed with my auntie my mother's sister for a couple of years while my parents kind of readjusted but then so then i went back to kisumu um, and then studied in a private school for a few years and uh, then transitioned into public school because my parents were always the biggest advocates of you know equal education you have to be exposed to the same mm -hmm. education as the people around you so there's an element of privilege that they had to pull away from me which was Like I never did my homework. <laughs> I never, I was, I was getting naughty. And so they were like, mm -hmm. you have to go to public school to understand that you mm -hmm. have to work twice as hard. And it was just like a lesson in life, which yeah. I'm also quite grateful for. But after she finished primary, Kitawa got used to being independent and to experience new environments. So when she got to secondary, she was then actively looking for new adventures. Joined high school, which I did in Nairobi, 
um, mm-hmm. right in the heart of the city, right next to the state house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an interesting one as well because my first school that accepted me into the system was literally 200 meters from my primary school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was, so, I was like, I cannot go to a school that's lit- just here. I need an adventure. So my mom yeah. pulled all her strings and got me into a Nairobi provincial school, which was almost impossible mm-hmm. back then. So did you want to go to Nairobi? or I was Nairobi just okay to- with anywhere. <laughs> I was just like, anywhere but here. Um, and that was interesting because I'm also coming from a small town and I get into this school and there's this whole different shift of culture, you know, the big city girls and mm-hmm. you know, the different perspectives to yeah. life. And then there's me who's queer and nerdy, with big glasses and really skinny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As you say, it was also an element of you. You need to know that in this town, you're kind of on your own. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I think that um, element of independence has been a running theme in, in, in the life of Kiki. This situation, however, seemed to push her. She was very good in school and finished second in her year. She had big ambitions for her life. She wanted to become a doctor and she did everything possible to achieve this. So she started med school, but sooner than later she found out that what she believed was her passion turned out to be very different than she imagined it. I mean, it was a mix. It was a mix of things. So the first was just the environment. So if you're getting into med school, you definitely have to go see the cadavers. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I'd, I'd be the one like cutting the live chicken for the family to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'll do it. Because I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. I need to be okay with blood. I need to be okay with this experience, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then now fast forward into university and I'm looking at the cadaver and I'm like, I don't want, I don't want this. This is disgusting. <laughs> like the sight of blood, the sight of like, this is the first time, like I was like, this is my life. And I don't think I want this to be my life. But there was another reason why becoming a doctor suddenly seemed like a bad idea. I wanted to be a pediatrician. I have, I love kids. And I was like, it'd be great to be a kid doctor. It's fun. Mm-hmm. You get to give them little cute things and be a friend and not have to deal with adults. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then they were like, you do realize you will lose your, your patience. Mm-hmm. Things will happen along the way. And then this is the first time I reconnected to like my brother dying and what it did to my family. Like, And that's mm-hmm. when I said, okay, I don't think I'll be able to manage. Um, I wouldn't, like, I really had to think deep and hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I dropped out of med school without telling my parents. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Another very independent step in Kiki's life. But as you can imagine, explaining this to the rest of the world wasn't easy. Because I did this literally on my own because I was scared to tell people that oh wow this person that you know being a doctor is such a huge thing and it's such an accomplishment like I was mm-hmm. like I can't tell anyone that I'm going to disappoint them mm-hmm. in not being a doctor like my teachers my family it was just ah oh. so yeah. yeah I had to do it on my own for some time and deal with the consequences later mm-hmm. um then 
in my second, like by the time I got to my second year, I just told my mom, okay, yeah, here are my transcripts. As you can see, I am not, <laughs> not in med school. And I remember she was like, what? And for some time, she also just kept telling people that I was still in med school. It was mm-hmm. so weird. But I think over time, like once I, I got into the groove of things, I was like, this is what I'm doing. And it really gave me that, that, that space and that room to be comfortable. Kitawa made her own decisions without the approval of the society around her. So I was wondering, what advice would she give her younger self and others who are at an important fork in their life right now. Yeah, I look back and I like I look back at uh, 19-year-old me and uh, um, that's 10 years ago. So it's very uncertain the, what the process looks like. But I think if you have a vague idea of what, where you're going is, if you hold on to that, then you have some, something that kind of validates your decisions along the way. And... It's you. It's your decision. This is your life and your path. And you choose either to go left or right. And when, when, when the final time comes and I have to, you know, I'm dying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like on my own. <laughs> there's always going to be consequences for the decisions that you make. But there's a greater reason why you're doing what you're doing. And if you kind of hold on to that, everything will make sense. So I think it's just trusting the process and accepting the consequences. After Kiki finished university, like everyone else, she had to figure out what to do next. So she started an internship where she first learned how the world of non-profit companies works. And she didn't find everything to be working perfectly. The public health system is usually supported by donors and grants, and therefore, for one reason or the other, you kind of fall into the nonprofit space. And one of the the places that the nonprofit world was in is in that transition between relying a hundred percent on donor grants and actually making them more sustainable because over time, the the donors do realize that this is not sustainable. And that's something, I mean, independence is something that we've talked about a lot. It was a moment of, oh, okay, I get to play a role in helping people become more independent. And so one of my roles is just generally coming up with these interventions and kind of testing the waters to see what works and what doesn't work and how can we like to help communities change their mindset. And it was very frustrating because um, you are dealing with people who have had this privilege and cushion over time. And you're coming in with this, you're plugging the money away from them. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of resistance. Kitawa got very hungry and excited about the interventions. But soon it turned out that the way things were going wasn't working for her at all. And she took another, you guessed it, independent step. And so I spoke, I spoke to a lot of the um, community members and I was like, so why is this thing not working? And most of them were saying, well, the reason this is not working is because you're coming here and telling us what to do. Mm-hmm. And for a change, we'd love for you to ask us what we want. And I had to kind of, take a few steps back and say, okay, great. I, I am not doing justice 
by mm-hmm. bringing my intervention and saying that this is the best thing. So that's the point where I had to now get a permanent contract. I said no. And I remember that's another interesting um, explanation that I had to give to my mom because this was a really well-paying job for an mm-hmm. intern. And she was like, why would you turn it down? Why? So I was like, I don't know. I just, I'm not feeling it. I'm sorry, but I'm not. Kitawa learned to be independent. So it was just a matter of time for her to start a business on her own. After turning down the job offer, she was on a mission to solve the problems she experienced on her very own. Here's how she started. The first thing I had to do was then volunteer for different people that I thought married with the interventions that I'd come up with. Um, I designed an entrepreneurship toolkit. So this was more of, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Kiki, or rather we are friends, we've met before. So that was literally the how I introduced the, now the official pilot of the entrepreneurship toolkit. And so I tried to use it in, an, in a non-profit startup and a for-profit startup. So for the non-profit, it was the same scenario to what I was experiencing in the organization. And I said, okay, clearly we need to give this um, sector some time. But I was still very passionate about the impact side of things. And so I picked some of the interventions from the nonprofit and plugged them into the for-profit that did very well with the entrepreneurship toolkit. So I, that process kind of took uh, two years. So 2016 is a point when I said, mm-hmm. okay, I can definitely see that this is viable. This is something that would make yeah. a good business. And then this was Mama Ventures was born. Mama Ventures was born. What stands out in Kitawa's approach is that she systematically searched for a working model. She didn't just randomly do the things she thought would be best, but she tried different scenarios and collected data about the results. Then she could be sure that it was actually working and creating value. I got a co-founder, I got a few volunteers to kind of, because I couldn't afford to pay any of them, yeah. <laughs> and because I hadn't raised any money and I wasn't planning to. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, then we tested it and like tested the toolkit in different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I guess the sweet spot came in 2018, so two years later, mm-hmm. when we realized that it really works well for for-profit startups who are looking for an impactful way of, or rather who are looking to build meaningful businesses. In 2018, Kitawa and her team had tested the toolkit on over 80 startups. And they again had a very systematic and engaging way to test the toolkit and learn from their customers. So how did you really do it? So how we did it, one is we ran our own workshops as Mama, so that's now from 2018. We run our own workshops. Uh, we run an entrepreneurship club called the Mingo. Mm-hmm. So I partnered with co-working spaces who are looking for the entrepreneurs. And so I would host, initially it was a weekly meetup. And we would have one topic from the toolkit as the topic of the day. Mm-hmm. And we would do really fun exercises around them and, and then do a Mingo. Like then people get to know each other and network. Mm-hmm. And that was such an interesting um, lesson to see then the, the toolkit in action. 
So mm-hmm. as people kind of, um, so I started weekly, then I moved it to monthly. And then we started seeing that people were asking for more and saying, hey, we can't do a, like a one hour mingle. Can we do something longer? <laughs> so <laughs> then we went on to do our own workshops and we would run them for half a day or a full day. Mm-hmm. And they would pay for it. And initially the meetups, they would never, like it was free were spending out of pocket <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. but then i think it really built that feeling of trust as well until today mama ventures is progressing and redefining itself still the process of getting here took years and kiki seems like she always kept on going so i was really wondering what was the driving force behind that she told us three points which she thinks made a difference. So I think the biggest vision was around sustainability. Um, that was the, how do we build sustainable businesses? Mm-hmm. And how do we build businesses that are not chasing the funding? I was like, we need to have more credible businesses. When you read about the, you know, the big companies in the world, they didn't stop. They didn't change their vision along the way. They allowed themselves to fail and iterate along the way to have companies that employ thousands of people. And I was really hungry for that. So that was the vision um, along the way. I think that was what kind of kept us moving. The second reason how they kept going is about handling rejection right. We, of course, you get a lot of rejections at the beginning, and that can really weigh you down. Like you... Because, and I understand the rejection because you also really don't know what you're offering. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you, you kind of know just like 40% of what you're offering. And I remember with every rejection, I would always ask, why did you reject my application? Uh, what can I do better? Um, I think that was definitely one of the things that helped us build a product that works or mm-hmm. a company that works. Because mm-hmm. if you don't take the negative feedback, and make it work for you, then you'd never grow. And the final reason. I think the final thing to that question is realizing that it's bigger than you. Um, That it's not a selfish mission. Mm -hmm. I think the minute you decide that you're starting a company, that means you're at the service of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're kind of indebted to you in one way or another, and you're indebted to them. And if you, like... Like, I, I know some of the moments where we woke up and, like, kept going is days when people be like, oh, thank you so much. If it were not for what you did, then this wouldn't have been working. But when, yeah. so, like, having that affiliation to people and realizing that where you're sitting is kind of helping other people with their own path. I think when you want to give up, you're like, okay, someone's child's school fees is on my head. Mm-hmm. And I need, to, I need to wake up and go. So where is Mama Ventures now? And where does Kiki see it going? But I think um, I would look at Mama now in 2020 and, and just uh, realize the strengths that we've had, that our greatest um, uh, place to work with is in partnerships. Because our greatest product was a toolkit that the accelerators need, then we would be a startup catalyst. So 
uh, our clients are accelerators, they're incubators, maker spaces. Mm-hmm. But we realized that the sweet spot for then our toolkit, all of it is actually on performance tracking. And also the current COVID-19 crisis is having its effect on Mama Ventures. So I think one of the biggest things we learned and maybe uh, COVID kind of pushed us into doing it by force is um, on building tools that are remotely accessible. So I have a data scientist um, as part of the team. And and we don't know how it's going to look, honestly, if you asked us. Um, I know right now we have used the tool with accelerators and incubators in East Africa. Um, so the question is, how how is it going to be available to individual entrepreneurs who want, you know, who want to track their progress? Um, so we're still wondering, so do we charge... Over time, we will realize uh, the direction that we wanted to take. But I think from where I sit, um, the tool might be free for individuals who just want to know how they're doing and kind of keep coming back to it as a reference as they grow. But even though Mama has come far, Kitawa has some big visions that she intends to fight for. I remember having... um, coffee with someone who said that this is the most ridiculous thing that they've ever heard and he doesn't think it will ever work and I think that's just the driving force Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I think I definitely want to build a social impact business school um, for for not not for the entrepreneurs but for the catalysts in the system people who are the glue that support businesses and support potential investment. I feel like we really don't have something that understands how African businesses work. And why I say this, I think it will be such an interesting experience for people from across the world to understand how vibrant the, the, the African business mindset is. And why I say this, it's, it's just something as simple as an PESA cannot scale because the culture is different. Yeah. <laughs> M-PESA actually morphed based on Kenyan habits. And Kenyan habits are so different from Ugandan habits and so mm-hmm. different from Tanzanian habits and South African, Nigerian. If you look at Africa, it's, it's a melting pot of uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> That drive to build a school isn't coming from nowhere. Back in her early adult life, she had a life-changing experience working as a teacher. And I have a strong love for education. Mostly, one, my parents were teachers. Two, after, after high school, I was actually an untrained teacher in a rural school. <laughs> But mm-hmm. that experience was so life-changing because... I'd never been a teacher before, but I was thrown into this school that had very limited teachers. Yeah. <laughs> I was a young person in the office. And so anytime they thought of something young, they would do it. But mm-hmm. um, so why this, like why, when I talk of the social business school, social impact business school is because um, in that process of education and being a teacher, I was able to kind of, it was, it was literally getting me off my high horse of privilege. There was so much going on in this small school. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing is because I hadn't gone to university yet and I went to university and 
one day, I think I was in my third year, I heard someone call me and go like, hey, Miss Wemo. And I'm like, who would call me that? Like, that's so official. And I turned and it was one of the kids from the school and he was the first one to make it to university. Mm. And he was like, thank you so much. I never got your phone number, but I'm so <laughs> glad I bumped into you because I'm here because I scored an A minus in my biology and it kind of lifted all my other grades and I'm mm -hmm. here. And I was like, wow, okay, that's really cool. And yeah. when I was doing my internship in the middle of nowhere, I heard the same voice. Some kid goes like, Miss Webb. I'm like, oh my God, it's one of them. And yeah. she, well, she was now married, but she was running her husband's shop. And she was mm -hmm. so self-aware and so confident. She was like, well, I'm here and I, I owe it to you because you're a, you are a girl and you are much younger than me then. But mm -hmm. seeing you kind of gave me purpose to grow. Yeah, I'm just, yeah. So Mama in the Future is an impact business school. What we haven't covered at all in this interview, Mama Ventures is a venture builder for female founders exclusively. So first of all, I wanted to know about Kiki's reason and personal inspiration to mainly support women. My father is very liberal and so I, I had a voice which was weird because a lot I realized that not many women had the privilege of having a voice even in their own homes uh, you speak when you're spoken to you know your place is in the kitchen so like my father didn't do much of that so there was that room for you know your voice can be heard you know be open to speaking I feel like It's unfortunate that a lot of women are born in a culture that already puts them at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that I, I fell into that category until, until I went into my internship. And so the very monumental experience that I had was uh, this particular instant that we had to do a community training. And we went to the middle of nowhere, I mean, with the, with the cars and went through like dried up riverbeds. And I remember just, you know, in the spirit of being me, I mean, I picked up my training resources. So one, before I stood up to speak, I noticed that the women were sitting on the ground. So this is 80 year old women, women from all ages who are there, were sitting on the ground. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> boys in their team were sitting on chairs. And then I stood up to speak and instantly some of the old men stood up and left. They didn't allow me yeah. to say one other word. And then this one old man who was sitting on a stool literally just turned and had his back face to me. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, and then this other guy was sitting on the ground. Like, and I was, and the girls were looking at me like, are you mad? why would you stand to speak you know it was such an interesting perspective and my colleagues were looking at me like okay <laughs> let's see yeah. how you deal with it you know mm -hmm. so that was the first time I realized like oh wow okay I live in a bubble I still did continue with my training mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as unimpressed as the guy men were and it was funny because the women spoke Uh, because the men were unimpressed and what yeah. some had left. Mm -hmm. So they were more, they, and this was a very interesting one because the women in like the Maasai community are the ones who do everything. They 
make the houses, they mm -hmm. feed the animals, they take care of the kids, take care of the husbands. And so they were the only people who would actually understand the community mm -hmm. and how it works. So we got the best answers that we'd ever gotten in a long time. Because mm -hmm. um, it was people who'd interacted with the problem that we were solving. Yeah. So that, I say that was definitely the point I, I did realize, okay, in as much as I don't fall into that community, there's a mm -hmm. certain realization that I need to need to have that other other women and girls don't have the same privilege yeah. out there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why naming the company Mama was so easy. Because I was like, yeah. this is what we are we are working to help women and girls become more independent and you know have a voice mm -hmm. in one way. Like that was at the top of our heads. And there was another incident that made her understand that there is something to be done. Remember the company wasn't making any money. And so I had to do other things. Um, I, was, I decided to help in running an event or organizing it. Mm -hmm. And this one time I had to go see one of the vendors at like 6.30 a.m. And like, yeah, and close the deal with him and get him to sign the contract. And this, and this um, person actually made a move at me. And I was not even, I could have been 21. And this was my first experience with like sexual abuse. Like, like of course I pushed him and you know, walked out and that. Yeah. But that was the first time that had happened to me. And I'd, I'd hear all these things in, in the media, like, oh, she, you know, the woman asked for it. And mm -hmm. She, she, you know, she was dressed funny or she said something, but I, I hadn't done anything. Yeah. And, and I think that was a point I was like, wow, aside from giving a woman the opportunity to have a voice, start a business, yeah. be independent, mm -hmm. there's so much more that this woman still has to deal with um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the world that she exists in. And I wouldn't say that that's the only time things like this have come up in my career, but I think it's just that awareness really shook me. Now, what patterns does Kitawa see in female founders? And what advice does she have for women who want to start a business? We are our biggest enemy. Um, whether alone or as a group, mm -hmm. um, we, we can be our best support system, but we can also be our biggest, biggest enemy. So I've noticed that a lot of women who start businesses, are, you know, I think a lot of conferences or talks have been done on the imposter syndrome. A lot of women have it. Of course, men have it too, but a lot of women also have it because you're getting into a space where like, do I deserve this? Mm -hmm. Am I smart enough? Am I, you know, and, and I think that's usually the first huddle. And so even before, even as you start your business, don't forget yourself in the process. We kind of build on, on who you are um, as, as, as you start. The imposter syndrome is a pattern in which people constantly doubt their own accomplishments and have the fear to be exposed as a fraud. The next advice Having a mentor. Having a mentor who kind of is there at the beginning is the best 
is the best thing that a woman getting into business needs. Um, and, and this is because at the beginning is when it counts, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why there's so few um, female-owned businesses is just because the mentors are brought in when it's, there's only five women in, a, in what could be in a, five in a hundred, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's definitely on, on self-awareness. Now, lastly, there are many programs and initiatives also within companies that give advantages for women in order to fight inequality. However, while taking advantage of them, there is something all women should make sure. I always say it's, it's not that element of um, I am entitled for this opportunity because I'm a woman. I think it's just you're as entitled as the next person. And so try to also just upskill yourself and be at the same level as the next person, whether they're another man or another woman. Yeah, so I think just try and be as competent as the next person because we are living in a very competitive society. And for you to stand out, you kind of need to work for it. So mm -hmm. save for working on your own self and your own growth and having someone to hold your hand, identifying a woman who resonates with your purpose and your vision. Then the other thing is just upskill. Learn, read, and, and just sit at the same table and own that space because that's the most you can do for yourself. Um, and you will be rejected <laughs> and you will be, you know, you'll be called names, you're stubborn, you're all this thing, but mm -hmm. remember why you're doing what you're doing. You have a reason, you have purpose for it. That's it for this episode of the Fondality Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe and don't miss out when we upload new ones. Please also share and leave a review if you want others to know about Foundality. If you want to know more about us, or if you want to leave us a message, visit foundality.com. Also, if you know an outstanding African entrepreneur who you think could be a great guest, please let us know. We do post small snippets, learnings, and inspirations from the podcast on social media. You can find us under the name Foundality. Episodes will be uploaded weekly. See you then. One lady said, you shouldn't wear red. <laughs> because you're tempting them and I was like what oh, no. <laughs> I was like, all my company pictures I'm in red because I'm like I can yeah. wear red and I will probably use it to my strength if it confuses a man that's his fight